and welcome to The Corona Zone, the podcast for people stuck in quarantine and wondering what the hell is going on. I'm Gabby and I'm here with Kirsten and thank you for joining us again for episode seven. Uh, I think we're on week six of the official UK-wide lockdown. Uh, There have been murmurings about maybe lightening some of the restrictions, but we're all still, you know, under the same stay home, leave for exercise once a day kind of rules. Um, Yeah, life's pretty much the same as last week, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's funny to think that back on episode three, I think it was, we called our episode, what day is it? And literally now it's what week is it? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, you know, now we're into May, so it could quickly turn into what month is it at this rate? Who knows? (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) April went really quickly, whereas March seemed to last forever. I don't know why that is. Yeah, yeah, maybe... Maybe because the novelty of it was, you know, things developed so quickly in March. That was when we got what felt like uh, one of the big headlines you get in a year, like nearly every day. You know, it was like Italy is in lockdown, Spain is in lockdown. You know, this country records this many deaths in a day. Like it was, it was all just developing so quickly. Whereas April has kind of been, you know, a little bit of a slowdown in the sense that places are reaching their peaks for number of cases and things like that which obviously is still big news but um people are kind of settled into lockdown at that point and just kind of getting on with it yeah that's probably true actually you know when you go on holiday and the day that you fly out or fly back at one point you just think i was in a different country this morning (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, yeah i know what you mean Uh (laughs) uh-huh Flights can be so weird. Like you, you, you almost feel like you've just like stepped into a room and then stepped into another room, and somehow you've moved, yeah, country. But it doesn't feel like it. Like you know you're flying, <laughs> but a plane is. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I think we're getting a bit philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's go back to sorry. Some countries do look like they may have. Uh, past the worst of it and they're starting to lift lockdowns and things but globally it does look like we're still seeing increases. Global cases now are just shy of 3.4 million and deaths are about 238,000. In uh, in the UK we've also continued to see the number of cases rise not maybe as rapidly as before but we are at 177,000 cases confirmed and Deaths are actually now over 27,000, which if you remember the figures from just over a week ago is a significant jump. But the reason for that isn't necess- isn't so much um, an actual increase in deaths, but that's that the, the UK-wide figures are now including care home deaths in that reporting. Still not including other community deaths unfortunately but this is a big step from where we were before where it was only people that had died in hospital and being tested that were being included in that count. It's also actually quite interesting to think about the fact that counting deaths is actually more complicated than it seems on the surface. Yeah that's true actually I wouldn't have thought this was going to be such a problem. David Spiegelhalter wrote a really good article in The Guardian about the complexity of counting deaths and comparing between countries So, for example, Spain haven't been including care home deaths in their counts either. And I think I just assumed that every other country was and that the UK were behind by not doing that. Mm -hmm. I still think it's 
an improvement that we are now counting those. But it's just useful to have that extra context. Yeah, I I actually don't know what it or if there is a general consensus, but you know, I, I don't know what the other countries are doing because I yeah, I remember seeing the figure from New Scientist that, you know, had two versions of the line for the UK, like one with and one without full figures from the ONS. And, and yeah, that did make me think, well, what about the other countries? You know, do, do they definitely all have one line that's directly comparable or you know, are we are, are we potentially running into similar issues? in a bunch of places. In Scotland too, the Scottish government have reported 1,515 deaths and almost 12,000 cases. Generally, across the UK and in Scotland, the rate of new infections is going down. However, in Grampian, we are still seeing an increase this week. I I think I did mention this in the podcast last week because we'd started to see that, but it seems to be escalating. It's not entirely clear to me why that is, As far as I can tell, people seem to be following lockdown pretty well. There have definitely been increases in cases at the hospital where my mum works. So although there's probably not an increase in community infection, it probably is hospitals and care homes where that's happening. Although that's purely conjecture on my part. Yeah, I I think it's worth remembering that even though we're seeing the, you know, countrywide figures with these tra- downward trends or you know leveling off it's it's entirely possible that individual areas are seeing their own patterns of infection you know like so some places could have reached the peak ages ago and then others might only just be reaching it you know it just depends on the movement within one place um especially if people aren't moving between towns or cities so much anymore um you're going to see quite different patterns i'd imagine again only conjecture but yeah from an epi point of view it makes sense thinking of disease outbreaks and monitoring them on a local level probably when we are in a lockdown does make quite a bit of sense and that's why it's been quite helpful to see the breakdown by area that the scottish government's been giving i think as well for for a while now you've been able to see number of cases number of deaths number of people in hospital and in uh, intensive care like by area in scotland so I think that's been quite helpful because I've kind of been keeping more of an eye on the Glasgow figure specifically than the Scotland one. Mm -hmm. Because again, that is quite a big area, you know, it accounts for over a million people, I think, but it's probably a bit more informative to me than just looking across the whole country because Scotland is such a varied place in terms of layout and population density. Definitely population density is another aspect of that because again, when it comes to comparing countries, you're comparing different contexts, right? Because different countries are more densely or sparsely populated. Um, There might be higher proportions of more elderly people who are at higher risk. There could be more health inequalities. There's a lot going on behind the picture of just a number of deaths. (coughs) During this week, we also saw the broadcast of quite a high profile documentary by uh, the BBC Panorama team on um, PPE in the UK. Uh, and yeah, the amount of discussion and buzz that cre- uh, that created on social media was quite considerable. I haven't been able to watch it myself yet, but I have seen references to the way that PPE has been counted. There was, there was a meme about going to this supermarket and your receipt saying you only bought one item when you actually bought... 2,000 items or 200 items, I can't think of the figure, but it's referencing the fact that you wouldn't count each individual sheet of toilet roll as its own thing. 
but yeah, the the documentary, I felt quite frustrated after watching it because there was a lot as well about lack of preparedness, um, lack of stockpiling and problems with the stockpiles and procurement and things like that. And they interviewed some healthcare workers who also just felt really let down. So yeah, I think it was definitely worth watching. And it is a bit surprising to me that we haven't talked about it more. I mean, I do understand the viewpoint of uh, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, who sort of said, yes, there have been feelings, and yes, there are things, well, I don't know if he quite said there have been feelings, but he acknowledged that there will be things we'll need to question and look back on. But now is not the time to be launching investigations. We're still in the middle of this. So I think it is right to question this and to look at where things could have been improved and look at how we can improve things as things are ongoing. Yeah, I guess you want to toe the line between keeping people that are in charge of you know the logistics of everything and procuring PPE accountable and asking those questions to yeah try and improve things as they're going on but yeah you also don't want to launch a full-blown investigation that's going to get in the way of doing things properly or you know cause major rifts or something where you need people to be cooperating right now it's a tricky one you know because people are going to have so many questions about what's gone on for a long time to come and you know especially so right now when we see the number of deaths every day but it's been frustrating you you see some people asking a lot of questions when maybe either they could get the answer from somewhere else like one thing that's been frustrating has been in some of the daily press briefings either by the Scottish government or the UK where the journalists will ask for figures for things as their question. And it's like, you can get that from, you know, the official, uh, you know, reports that are being output. You know, there's something else you could use this time for right now to, do you know what I mean? That does make sense. Although I did read a thing a few weeks back where the author had previously been a politician and they actually said that sometimes those are the hardest questions especially if the figure is bad because you know if if you're answering with that figure you're having to frame it put those stats in context and and yeah as you say frame it yeah i mean it's it's not to say that it's never good to ask those questions yeah especially if it is maybe something that you might want to not rave about you know um or if it's got a point that's worth exposing but um i I guess what i mean is more you know when someone's like oh you know can you tell us how many people are in hospital with this thing and all this where they could be getting that data from somewhere else and maybe they could ask like why haven't you provided this to this place yet because you know we've had reports that they're struggling with that or you said you were going to do this and you haven't or you know challenging actions yeah, that's a fair point. I do find that the press briefings don't often give you that much information either for the length of time that they go on. And the UK ones have, they're only, there's only certain press invited now, right? There are some places that have apparently been, I don't know about barred, but you know, aren't able to ask questions. If that's true, that's quite worrying. Yeah, so I, I do want to 
you know, put a caveat there that it, it depends on what the sources for this were. But um, I originally read it in a discussion, um, it's got a discussion board online that referred to a new European article where apparently the Observer's political editor um, was told that the Sunday Times were not being allowed to pose questions at the daily press briefing. Um, and that's following uh, the article we spoke about last week where they uh, published their really high profile article that got a lot of discussion and the point by point rebuttal from the government. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the opposite kind of thing you want to worry about, you know, where people that would be asking those challenging questions aren't being allowed to. It's a complicated time, I think, to be living through and also to know what the media ought to be doing because I definitely think the government need to be held to account and scrutiny and any feelings that have been made really do need to be brought to light. But then a public health emergency like a pandemic is one time where you really need to trust in like official guidelines because without that, people wouldn't have followed the lockdown. And well, I suppose you can still not necessarily trust the government and still believe in a public health point of view that that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just a really difficult one to navigate, I think, on all sides. Yeah, I think as long as you're not going as far as uh, tweets by Alan Sugar, I think that were going around this week where he was saying we only really need to be hearing from positive press right now or that we don't need to be hearing from negative press as if... Uh, Anybody reporting on what the government's doing should just be positive. This is going great news when obviously we know that that's not the case all the time. It's like the meme of the dog in the house burning down going, (laughs) this is fine. (laughs) I can't believe that's become so relevant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) In good news, though, I suppose, if we want to follow that angle, (laughs) Boris had his baby... And we reached 100,000 tests. There was a funny moment I saw on Twitter where, I mean, somebody else had summed it up, but I think originally there was a an announcement that Boris wasn't going to be attending the first Prime Minister's questions against Keir Starmer. And um, I think people started speculating and, you know, tweeting, oh, he, you know, he doesn't want to face him because he did really, you know, uh, Starmer did really well in his first one. He can't face him, all this kind of thing. Uh, And then it was announced that he just had a baby. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, quite, I don't know. I just thought that was a funny moment in terms of all the um, speculation and political angling. And it's like, no, actually, he just had a kid. That's all. Yeah, fair. (laughs) The 100,000 tests Mm. um, has been a little bit controversial. So there have been accusations that's a little bit of a PR stunt and that they've included home tests that have been sent out in the count, but these haven't been returned or carried out yet. I I suppose if the the reporting is true that, yeah, that number isn't just the tests that have been carried out in labs, that's also at home kits that have been made available to people but they you know they don't know if they're positive or not yeah how can you compare that to the figures we've been seeing the last few weeks um because surely if the whole time you were counting this person has you know come to an appointment then that would be different you know but um i i guess if you're now going to also include like we've sent all these things out in the post i guess my concern is that 
you can also have a bit of a quick rush because they've been pretty keen to try and meet this target because so many people have been saying to them, you know, or, you know, so many people have been discussing, you know, the government's never going to reach it. You know, they're still only at 30,000 a day. You know, how are they ever going to reach it? So I I think they had a lot to gain by doing their best to make 100,000 a day. But if it's just tests sent out, you know, couldn't they feasibly have done that just to meet the target for the day? And then, you know, maybe that slows down again afterwards. And if home tests are an option why aren't they a much bigger thing in general like is that a logistical problem because you would have thought that would be quite a good way of you know finding out um who's positive and not i do think it's a very recent thing i mean to to some extent the things that dominic rab has been saying and you know matt hancock have been been saying leading up to it that you get a short term, you know, quite rapid ramping of how many things are available because you get the schemes running, you know, that you've been trying to put in place. So, you know, if it's taken two weeks to set up a lab and you're setting up, you know, a few of those, there is going to be a short period of time at the end where you'll open up and start running and suddenly you have a bunch of new tests available. So yeah, it's it's possible that it's just the methods by which they do all these home tests are now available and this is going to be the new normal. Yeah, but I had hadn't heard much about them being a thing before now. Yeah, no, I don't think I had either. But the other problem that was pointed out by Paul Nurse, who's the director of the Francis Crick Institute, when he was on Question Time the other night, is that a hundred thousand tests is a bit arbitrary. Like from a epidemiology point of view, how many tests do we actually need to be monitoring this properly, or you know, when it comes to track and tracing methods, they'll have to be modelling and studies going into that to work out how many tests we need a day to effectively control the pandemic. So 100,000 is all well and good. And I think it's probably not an awful idea to say, here's a big number, let's go for it. You know, because that gives you something to work towards and mobilises people. But I think we may need more than this I, I mean I don't know because I don't know any of the research into that at the moment or if there has been any research into that I'm sure there will have but yeah I suspect it might be more than that that we'll need when we get to that stage of starting to lift lockdown and doing track and tracing so I don't know if this was inspired by the same thinking or not but I just had a quick look and there's an article in the Guardian that was published um, about a day ago that talks about whether a hundred thousand tests a day is an effective strategy um mm-hmm. and i found this because i remembered people have been comparing to germany quite a lot and saying that they you know very quickly made a lot of testing available and they've been testing a big proportion of their population on the regular you know and that that's part of the reason why they've been able to keep cases so low compared to other um european countries and um apparently germany are performing nearly a million tests a week and uh, you know they're also getting less than a thousand daily positive cases now so if we are getting in the order of you know five six thousand positive cases a day in the uk and yeah i mean i suppose we're not far off a million if this you know if the hundred thousand a day figure maintains so we're you know that's seven hundred thousand a week which is a lot but yeah i guess a hundred thousand just sounds like a big number right <laughs> what is that based on yeah other than pr 
I mean, it'll be interesting to see how things continue after now. I suppose now that we're up to that figure, it ought to be continuing because otherwise it was just, uh, you know, you train to run the marathon and then after it, you never go out for a run again. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose we'll be able to see what was really happening by the next few days. <clears throat> so an article that I've seen getting quite a lot of buzz on Twitter. And when I say Twitter, I probably mean science communication Twitter <laughs> is an Atlantic article by Ed Young. He's a science staff writer there and he's actually been doing really good coverage of the coronavirus pandemic so far. This most recent article was about why the coronavirus is so confusing to science and it raised loads of really interesting points. One thing that ties into some of the stuff we were talking about before is the case fatality rate. So this is the idea of the number of people who are infected, how many of them go on to die. And that figure ranges quite a lot from 0.1 to 15%. Oh, wow. That is a big range. Yeah. And I think it's a bit frustrating not having more clarity there, but it's realistic that there will be variation. So as I kind of touched on earlier, this idea of if you have an elderly population, then more of the cases in that will end up in fatalities. I, th- I think that's the kind of nature of infectious disease. Different populations will respond differently. I was thinking about this and the only virus I know of that has a pretty clear case fatality rate is rabies because it's 100% unvaccinated. <laughs> um, but even that's not exactly true because one or two people have been documented surviving that if they've been put into like an induced coma. So yeah, it's just, I think the the article just did a really good deep dive onto some of the science that we do know and some of the science that we don't know, and also why it's a really complicated debate. That's that's really interesting. I had been wondering like how long it would take before we get an accurate figure, because that was a focus really early on, you know, there were, everyone was reporting, we have a 2% case fatality rate, uh, you know, why does this place have two, but this place has five, and what's the difference here? And yeah, I, I was thinking from from my own understanding of it anyway, which is obviously very limited. Yeah, how long will it take before we get an accurate figure? But yeah, maybe the question is, will we ever get a fully accurate one? You know, maybe there's mutations that have happened or just the way it affects places differently. And it, there's also just chance, you know, like how one person is going to react to it. Well, one thing the article did highlight is that the virus so far doesn't seem to have mutated very much. There was some talk early on about different strains of the virus but so far virologists seem to think that that's not much of an issue that the virus isn't very or the virus isn't significantly different in in the strain that they're seeing um, and they are monitoring that quite closely the largest variations do seem to be how the disease operates in these different contexts Mm -hmm. yeah and then we are starting to also see results of investigations into why it's affecting or how it's affecting men and women differently or people from black Asian minority ethnic communities differently uh even people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to die it seems so I think you know even if you're looking at one specific country you have all the variation within that population that just means you you're going to have a struggle to pin a number on anything really right you know it's always going to be a range 
Yeah, that's an interesting point, though. It was really tone deaf early on in this, in the UK outbreak, that people kept saying it was a great leveller and that anyone could be affected. But it's really not. I think, if anything, what's been really stark, actually, is that the virus has brought health inequalities that have always been inherent in the UK and elsewhere really to the foreground. (coughs) The other thing that the article did really well was it talks about the nature of scientific discoveries and how I think in the general public people like to think of this one paper or one study and this one great finding and this sort of genius scientist being behind it but in reality it's a really slow march forward and any new findings are normally based on lots of studies agreeing and edging towards something mm-hmm. and I yeah I just thought it, it did a really good job of explaining that. Yeah I think there's been an expectation that because the pressure is so great that things would progress really quickly and that we'd get an answer to some things much sooner than normal but yeah we still have to reach consensus. And it's even the idea of any new treatments or vaccines and things it's not going to be overnight once a vaccine is discovered if if one's discovered there'll then be well, after all the trials that it has to go through, there'll then be issues of, I suppose they call it phase four trials, is when it goes out into the general public and it's getting monitored as it goes along. And like really rare adverse reactions can show up at that point because it's only when it's in a much larger population that you're seeing these things. So I think it's just this idea that there's never going to be a one moment that turns us around. It's it's going to edge towards whatever the future is going to end up looking like. (coughs) So this week in Scotland, we actually had some new advice for uh, preventing infection of COVID uh, coming out. So this is the first time any of the countries in the UK have recommended using face coverings as a way of uh, trying to reduce the spread. So um, to be specific, the the reason I say face coverings is because they, there's, there was a bit of a worry about whether if you start recommending that people wear masks, that that encourages people to go out and start buying, you know, surgical masks and N95 masks. And as I'm sure by now you are all aware, <laughs> there's a, a real shortage of PPE. So the last thing you want to do is encourage people to go out and, you know, take supplies away from the people that do need it the most. The difference here is that the recommendation now coming from the Scottish government is when you are in a position where it's either difficult or impossible to properly social distance, so you're in a supermarket where maybe you can't keep your distance from other people consistently, or you're you know having to work but you can't stay away from people as well, um, or using public transport, for example, that it might benefit you, and it's now like recommended or advised but not enforced that you might want to wear a face covering. Um, and it's it's interesting that this has come out because it has been a debate that's gone on for quite a while. Um, I think people have been asking either why aren't we being told to wear them? You know, even the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has been urging the government to bring this uh, re- you know recommendation in. Um, and there's been different recommendations coming from the World Health Organization and the CDC in America has been asking people to wear them now. And yeah, there's been a lot of 
toing and froing of advice and what the right thing would be to do. Um, but it's interesting to see this happening. I mean, anecdotally, I'm seeing a lot more people starting to wear them, but it's definitely not, you know, across the board, everybody's wearing masks now. Um, have you noticed people wearing them more? Well, I don't go to supermarkets. <laughs> One of the perks of being at home and living in the middle of nowhere is that, oh, and not being able to drive, <laughs> is that I'm never the one to do the shopping. Um, my sister works in Asda. I'll have to ask her. Um, and I wonder if they'll give like employees masks. I Yeah, I would hope so. Um, they, they've been putting shields up at the tills and everything, but you'd hope that masks would be quite an easy extra bit of protection to provide. Well, apparently there's a bit of a rivalry. Um, it's a quite a big Asda that my sister works in. And they say that the people in the checkouts are treated like queens. <laughs> They've got their little hand sanitizers and their screens. And um, Julian works in the chilled section. So it's like, you know, just in the middle, mingling mm-hmm. with all the people that <laughs> could infect her. Um, one thing, though, I suppose that I will pick up on is the fact that the masks don't benefit the wearer they mm-hmm. benefit other people because it stops you spreading it um, unless it's a medical grade one um, which they're not encouraging um, it won't actually stop you getting it so much as reducing your chance of transmitting it yeah it, exactly this is much more a uh, act as if you have it if you wear something on your face then it might catch some of those extra droplets before they spread around you um, and I think that was something that was quite good uh, that was emphasized by Nicola Sturgeon during the press conference because um, I, I was watching it at the time when they announced it and uh, understandably a lot of the questions from the journalists dialing in were then about this new recommendation and uh, yeah I thought it was quite good that she kept stressing you know this is an extra piece of um, you know this is an extra piece of guidance to follow we're still recommending everybody do everything else we've already been saying you know you should be keeping your distance first trying not to go out using you know hand sanitizer or washing your hands if possible but if all of that is you know if, if you can't follow all that as well or if you want to do something else on top of that wear something you know that covers your face um, but it's not you know we don't know that it will prevent you from catching it so well it's it's more just to dampen the spread hopefully but you know focusing on that point I do want to say that is part of the issue you know the potential benefit has been debated quite a lot uh, you know we've, we've had one side of the argument saying that if you wear something and it you know does catch some of those larger droplets or something then you know maybe that helps prevent the spread but on the other side if you especially if you don't stress that you should be doing everything else as well, you know, and and using proper procedure for how to wear the mask and everything and how how it should be fitted. Uh, There's also the danger that it makes people relax and that it could maybe even increase the spread because people think they're now invulnerable. Um, And I think that's why it's caused a lot of that uncertainty. Yeah, and I think that's why it is important that if the government are changing their advice that they are really really clear about that and i i think i noticed that the scottish government have also put out adverts explaining it oh that's um, good so they do seem to be putting in a lot of effort to try and make that clear to people and i think clarity is key Mm -hmm. when you've 
gone from saying don't wear them to do wear them because I think it's important and valid in the times like this when we're learning new things all the time about this virus. And and I think changing policy is appropriate when you're learning new things, whereas politically it's not always popular because it's seen as doing a U-turn. Mm-hmm. But I think this is one of those times where it's not weakness to change your strategy if the information that you have changes, it's it's an important thing to do and to put your ego aside. Yeah, I completely agree. Right now we should be updating advice based on the most recent evidence, not not wanting to backtrack because it makes you look weak. Yeah, 100%. <coughs> so, Kirsten, how are you doing this week? Not bad. I was trying to think of what I'd even been doing this week because every week feels the same as I said at the start of the episode Um, (laughs) but I watched on iPlayer Normal People Uh, I've heard a lot of buzz about it but I haven't read the book haven't seen the show how is it so yeah I read the book a couple of years ago I think it came out in 2017 or 18 and I I got it then and absolutely loved it and I thought at first I wouldn't watch the TV program because sometimes I'm a bit picky that you know one you of those people the, who's you know on the TV show spoil the book, which I know is petty of me because you need to appreciate them as their own art or whatever. But the TV program was amazing. It was maybe even better than the book. Uh, well, would I say that? I don't know, but it was brilliant. <laughs> um, it's just uh, yeah, you just like fall in love with and hate the characters. <laughs> Like in a good way, like they frustrate you and they just, yeah, it's just great. It's not like a brand new story in a way, it, like, but it's just really brilliantly done. I don't think it's petty to maybe avoid watching an you know, on-screen adaptation of something. I, I think I've always had difficulty with reading something after I've seen it on TV or in a film because then I end up imagining the things as they've been shown to me. And... Mm. Yeah, I've I've had that same kind of feeling like you want to preserve like the way you've experienced it rather than like someone's interpretation. Yeah, I was always the worst person to talk to about Harry Potter films though back in the day because <laughs> I'd be like, that's not what Harry would have been like in the book. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't include this fact. <laughs> yeah. In the book, he went there and then he went to this other place and then came back. <laughs> Yeah, literally, I I was that person. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you're alone in that. I mean, I think if there's anything that people would be picky about, it's it's Harry Potter. (laughs) But if you do watch normal people, you then need to go and read the Vice article that was written about guys wearing neck chains and whether or not it's sexy. Or, I mean, (laughs) the article is very firmly saying that it's sexy. Oh. Um, (laughs) But it's just a great like really funny article um so yeah i recommend that too (laughs) i also discovered weirdly that childish gambino released an album in the middle of march oh and he just named it 3 15 2020 which is the american date that it was released which i was like what like how did this just happen and i just never heard about it and then the album is like the artwork is just blank and all of the tracks are just like the time that they are in the album 
oh okay and i was like come on man like <laughs> this, this is annoying i'm not going to recommend that my friend listens to track 38 <laughs> 15 or whatever is it edgy or is it just lazy <laughs> i mean yeah yeah that's the question <laughs> um I've not fully decided whether or not I will recommend the album to people. I actually quite liked it, but I'm not blown away. So I'm going to listen to it again and let you know. <laughs> um, what have you been up to? Well, uh, still running. been doing that. I'm on uh, week five of Catch to 5K now. Um, like, well, I say week five. I've been doing it every other day instead of three days a week. So um, I've been moving through it a little quicker than weekly. But... Uh, yeah, it, it's it's been difficult the last couple of weeks, but uh, I've got the big one this week. So in three days' time, I have to run 20 minutes without stopping. And Ooh. I'm a bit worried about that because it'll be the first time in years I've been able to do it. But I also think it might be doable. Yesterday, I ran three lots of five minutes with like a walking break in between. And I did have to take a little bit longer during the second walking break, which is the first time I've had to not strictly follow the timing, but it was okay. You know, it was, it was difficult, but um, I think, I think it might be doable. I don't know. I need to, it's, it's definitely turning out to be much more of a mental game. Mm, I think running is. Yeah. Like I, I think I've kind of realized like as soon as you start thinking, Ooh, this is hard. You know, maybe I should slow down or stop for a bit. You can almost physically feel your body like wanting to stop. So you have to just try not to even think about it. It's really weird. Like, I've, you know, I've, I don't think I've experienced that before. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally know what you mean. I get that a lot when I go running. My 5K time's really slow. <laughs> um, my first kilometer will always be quite fast. And then um, sometimes I'll probably end up taking walking breaks and stuff. So I've been trying to do shorter runs to build my pace and then I'm going to do a longer run tomorrow maybe to try and build my stamina. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds like a good plan. I've, I've kind of looked ahead to what I would do if I tried to go on to a 10k and mm. it, yeah, it seems like you kind of go between, you know, five, 10 minute runs and then breaks in between and days where you just run, you know, 40 minutes without stopping. Um, mm. But I'm not sure if this carries on going okay. And I turn into one of these people that goes for morning runs or something. Um, <laughs> uh, what, you know, what does a normal run look like? Because right now I'm kind of, you know, I'm learning to run. So I'm, I'm just doing what I'm told. <laughs> but if I get to the point where I just want to run more regularly, you know, how, how long, how long do you run on a, on a run? <laughs> I don't know. I think 5K is just like a normal length to just go out for a run. Okay. Because I think, it, you know, it probably takes, if you include like stretching either side or whatever, about half an hour, which is a normal about amount of time to exercise. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's just not anything I've ever done as cardio. You know, you, even when I'd go on the treadmill in the gym, I'd maybe only run for you know, 15, 20 minutes and then maybe move on to something else. So mm. didn't know what the normal was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you keep it interesting. <laughs> yeah, so this is my worry. I've been looking at other 
I've been looking at forums of other people that have done the uh, Couch to 5K program, and some of them do say they start getting bored. Like, because you are waiting for the timer to tell you to start walking or start running again, it's a bit more interesting. But then once you get to the point where you just have to run, um, yeah, well, if it gets boring, <laughs> I guess I have to stop <laughs> listening to music and start putting a podcast on or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I listen to podcasts when I run. Oh, okay. Maybe that's the trick then. <laughs> right now, I still need the music to pace myself. Like, I try and find something that's about the right, um, you know, beats per minute and then use that to keep myself going at a good rate. But maybe I'll get to a point where I won't need that as a crutch. So, what else have you been doing in terms of uh, uni work or, you know, the job hunt? How's that been going? Um, well, I had a few. Actually, was it last week I got rejected? I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> I've had a couple more applications and rejections. Definitely still a struggle, but um seen a couple of jobs in the last few days that actually look quite interesting. Whether or not I get them is obviously a different story, but it, it is a bit more motivating again to have found a couple of things that I'm like, yes a job I want to apply to like, <laughs> um, it felt like I hadn't seen one of those in a while so oh good what about you how has the PhD been going uh no comment <laughs> <laughs> no uh, I recognize that feeling <laughs> yeah I mean I've been in a rut for a while I think like uh, you know we, we you know maybe spoken about this a bit in the past you know not on the podcast but it's it's like all the things that I would normally do to get a change of scene or, you know, go and get, uh, you know, work with a friend in person or, you know, go work in the library or, you know, go out and do something fun and then come back and try again or something, you know, a lot of those things just aren't an option anymore. So when work isn't going well, inevitably I am just still in the flat, in my own head, struggling, you know, so it's yeah it's been it's been difficult but um I try to you know face up to it a bit and reached out to somebody in my department that I could talk to about it um and they were really understanding and um hopefully I can you know try and make some positive changes what well, one of the things that's been helpful to try and think about is so the uh the part-time work I've been doing that's like press related that I've been really enjoying I've not had any trouble at all being productive with that. If anything, not to toot my own horn, but I've been crazy productive <laughs> when I've been doing that. Like I, you know, I sit down at nine o'clock in the morning and I work right through until, you know, after one or wherever I'm supposed to stop. And I'm sat at the same seat at the same computer in the same flat. And I do really well at that. So what is it about that that means that I can do that versus my PhD work, which is you know it, it's computer-based work in the same location so I'm trying to look at what it is that I do like about the other work that maybe I can model in writing um mm. and it it's a lot of the same you know stuff you hear about all the time so you know breaking things down and giving yourself a reward but I think I just need to kind of work out how exactly to do that for me because like take the Pomodoro timer thing, for example. I've done that in the past and I have found it helpful at times, but I've always done it in the way where 
you know, I'll, I'll set a time for 25 minutes and I'm going to write for 25 minutes. Um, but that hasn't worked so much recently. But um, the, the person I was speaking to yesterday was like, why don't you do that? But make it something that you can finish in 25 minutes so that by mm-hmm. the time you get to the end of it, you, you have a feeling of having done something and achieved something rather than it just being that you worked for that time. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's little things like that that I'd not really thought about, but I think might make quite a good difference. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Hopefully I'll come back next week and have made some progress or, you know, found some things that work for me. Yeah. For some of the teaching stuff that I've been doing, um, they were asking if we could help put together materials for students who are now working from home. And I've put my name down to do the one on how to avoid procrastinating. Mm. I, I'm hoping that in researching and putting that together, I'll learn some things that'll help me. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that the best way to understand something is to teach it. Well, yeah. So I'll let you know if I learn anything groundbreaking. <laughs> that brings us to the end of episode seven thank you so much for listening we hope you've enjoyed hearing us chat about some of the updates this week and some of the issues we've been seeing we hope everyone's staying safe and sane as we go into the next couple of weeks of lockdown maybe more we'll see as ever for reliable health information please check government and nhs guidelines and websites uh, if you do want to get in touch our email address is thecoronazone at gmail.com our Twitter is CoronazonePod and our Instagram is the CoronaZone. Our intro and outro music is from audionautics.com. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully catch you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>